know, just going back and forth to history, I just want to talk about briefly the discovery of sex hormones. Historically, in the late 19th and early 28th centuries, Eugene Senak discovered sex hormones through his experiments on rats. He removed the testicles from the rats and implanted them in the rat's abdomen. And he found that the normal male characteristics of the rats were terminated. Eugene Stenak also developed a procedure to increase testosterone, male hormone level in the body. His experiments revealed that both testosterone level and sex drive can be increased in men by sealing or tying off the ducts, the vast deference that carries sperm from the testes to the penis. The procedure is called a vasectomy in modern era of endocrinology. But all these revolutionary findings together paved the way to modern endocrinology. You know, just talking about polycystic ovaries and some women having difficulty getting pregnant. So first of all, what is the connection between the endocrine system with emphasis on female reproductive system? So definitely two very complicated but very sophisticated systems. This is where I say we now leave the ovaries and (laughs) the reproductive organs and move on to our brains. (laughs) So we have actually two structures, the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, which kind of are like the central control for a lot of, no, for all of the hormones in our body. And if you looked at, or what you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, so a hormone really is produced by an organ somewhere else and then travels a long distance to get to that end or target organ and produce an effect. The reproductive system is really, it's ultimately, it's meant to produce offspring. So in a woman here, definitely you want to release that egg or ovum, which is ultimately going to help in birthing a child. But you are also thinking about regular menstrual periods or cycles that are needed to get the organs ready for such an act. Now that reproductive system, even though its main function is to reproduce, it has cells and tissue that are going to produce sex hormones and what we call ovums and gametes. Now, this is all controlled by a smooth coordination with the endocrine organs. This gives us what we call the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So the hypothalamus, your supermaster gland, sends down signals to your pituitary gland which in turn sends down signals to the uterus and the ovaries, directing them to produce certain levels of hormones and really help follicles mature to form eggs. As these hormones, as the estrogen, progesterone and testosterone are released, we now have feedback signals or feedback loops going back to the brain and either telling it, hey, those hormone levels are great, we don't need to do or make any changes, or, oh no, we are producing too much, let's back off that signal, or, hey, the ovaries are not working, so let's bump up that signal. So this is what we call a lot of the functions in our body work on what's called a negative feedback loop. 
So if that end organ, if that reproductive system is working too hard, it's producing too much hormone, that pituitary gland is going to back off. It's going to give a negative feedback and say, hey, back off, don't do it. If it's not doing enough, it's going to push more signal down to the ovaries, to the organs. So yes, we have a very complicated but a very sophisticated system, the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, which really smoothly and nicely brings together our reproductive and our endocrine systems. So why is it that, you know, some women, and I know you started talking about it with PICOs, with polycystic ovaries, they can have really a tough time getting pregnant just based on that, you know, all the other, the tubes are not blocked, the uterus is working well, the partner's sperm count is correct. But just from the fact that they have these polycystic ovaries, picos, they're having a hard time getting pregnant. So it brings us to two things. One, that regular cycling or that regular menstruation is important to maintain normal estrogen levels, uh, to cycle and form an ovum. The other concern is those androgen levels, which also play a role. As I mentioned previously, there is really there's hyperstimulation or excess LH or luteinizing hormone, but a relative lack of follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. That FSH is what's truly required for that follicle to mature, develop and form an egg every single month. Because there's not enough follicles that mature and release or ovulate and release an egg, there is difficulty then in reproduction or conception. And um, these women can get pregnant though, once we, they could get pregnant. So I tell my women patients, it's not impossible to get pregnant because you have polycystic ovaries. It may be more difficult to get pregnant because you have polycystic ovaries. As I mentioned before, we do have a phenotype which ovulates pretty okay and will do fine. But for most women, yes, they will have at least some level of trouble getting and staying pregnant, mostly related to the hormonal imbalances going on. So we've kind of established that a woman can get pregnant even can possibly get pregnant, even despite the fact that she could have this hormonal imbalance. And, you know, we want to talk to the infertile couple together. And during the initial interview with the, the couple trying to get pregnant, we inform them as to the timeline and to the statistical outcomes of treatment. And we also look at the couple's psychological status and how would you say the medication clomiphene citrate which has become the most widely used drug in the management of inadequate cycles in respect to fertility management. How would you say, how well would you say this medication has worked? So I do say, I see it working for a lot of women. So going back to you have that timeline or counseling is very important. I always like to start with a beautiful lifestyle modification, even before we start trying to conceive, weight loss before conception is important 
metformin may help. And then finally, clomiphene citrate is speaking to, yes, you are increasing FSH, which is then increasing follicle stimulation and growth. It's often started in doses as small as 50 milligrams taken five days a week to up to 200 milligrams as needed. There are other agents that can also be used. Uh, so there's definitely, I say, a lot of hope for women with polycystic ovaries. And yet things don't always work out. Uh, so part of that counseling should probably also include what I call the worst case scenario or what if all of our efforts and all of the medicine that we currently have fails to produce what we want, then our other methods are adoption uh, or even just a childless life part of the equation or what do we do with that so it's good to be prepared for the worst but hopefully we have a lot of medications a lot of lifestyle changes that can help a majority of the women and so you know when a woman finally achieves pregnancy a woman with hormonal imbalance you know and i want you to answer this question briefly because we're going to talk about it some more what is the most common endocrine disorder in pregnancy for that woman that finally, despite endocrine hormonal imbalance, is able to get pregnant? So no question about it, whether it's gestational diabetes that develops during pregnancy or pre-existing type 1 or type 2 diabetes in pregnancy, but that's by far your most common endocrine disorder in pregnancy. So endocrine diseases are common as a whole in pregnancy, mm -hmm. and there are a variety of them because in pregnancy there are extensive hormonal adaptations that are necessary in pregnancy to occur. There is a fetus, there's a placental unit, and there's a maternal endocrine system. So there's a lot of interaction going on. And almost every endocrine axis is altered in pregnancy. And also, the changes that occur in pregnancy can also alter the clinical progression of underlying endocrine abnormalities. Okay. And so additional monitoring might be required during pregnancy and after pregnancy. And I want us to talk about some of these endocrine problems that could happen in pregnancy. For instance, the thyroid gland, a gland in the front of the neck, uh, can undergo changes in normal pregnancy. But what happens when there is a thyroid abnormality in pregnancy. Talking to pregnancy, uh, the endocrine system was complicated enough, and now we have a whole temporary endocrine organ called the placenta to add to the mix, which really brings about a whole lot of complications, I say. So thyroid problems, even in a patient who is not pregnant, are difficult because symptoms are very nonspecific. I tell my patients, I can ask you about weight gain and dry skin and hair loss and fatigue and constipation, and you may have all of the above because you have a thyroid problem, or you may have that because you're just not eating right or sleeping right or stressing or many other causes. Now I ask the same questions to my pregnant woman, and I tell her the same thing. This could be because you have a thyroid problem, or it could be because you're pregnant, and you gain weight, and you have skin changes, and you have mood changes, and you have changes in your bowel habits. So certainly, it is difficult to diagnose <laughs> thyroid problems during pregnancy. Bringing that placenta into the mix 
really complicates things. So there are pregnancy hormones being formed, HCG being the big hormone during that first trimester of pregnancy. That HCG, the human chorionic gonadotropin, which is so important for pregnancy, structurally looks very similar to TSH or thyroid-stimulating hormone. So similar, in fact, it also confuses the brain <laughs> and the thyroid receptors. So HCG can act on thyroid hormone receptors like it was TSH, causing what looks like an almost hyperthyroid state in the early part of pregnancy. It is very important to kind of distinguish, monitor the state, and figure out if this is something that's really going to be monitored, can be looked at, followed, and it will set itself right in its due time, or is this really going to turn into that overactive thyroid that needs to be treated during pregnancy, or an underactive thyroid that needs to be treated during pregnancy? So, you know, pregnant women need 50% more thyroid hormones in pregnancy. Is there a quick reason for that? There's, a, there's several reasons for that. So, we are really, I always, just like I tell my pregnant women, you're not eating for two. It's not necessarily two human beings, but there is that second little fetus who has a big thyroid hormone requirement. They do not have a, a functioning thyroid gland up until at least the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. So you have to account for we need thyroid hormone for mom and we need thyroid hormone for the fetus. Now, to complicate things, we have a lot of what we call thyroid hormone binding globulin. So there's a lot of hormone being formed, but it's being bound to protein where it cannot be used by the tissues. And then finally, we have a placenta which deiodinates or breaks down hormone. So combining all of those features, yes, most women will need a lot more thyroid hormone during pregnancy than prior to. Well, we know that certain conditions, you know, just picking off what you said, so the iodine requirement in pregnancy is increased, you know, but we know that if you have a thyroid condition that is not treated, it can lead to a, an adverse pregnancy outcome. And having a miscarriage obstetrically might mean untreated thyroid disease and hyperthyroidism that complicates about one in 500 pregnancies. So it's not that rare, you know. And so what are some of the things that can happen if pre-existing disease, that is you go into that pregnancy knowing that you might have thyroid problems and you just talk to us about how even the thyroid situation can become exaggerated with pregnancy. So you have all these problems and it's not treated. What are some of the things that could happen? So I definitely counsel all of the women in childbearing age who come to see me for thyroid problems. I definitely counsel them that they ideally should not try for pregnancy until they have a TSH in normal range. What we do know on both ends of the spectrum, whether it is uncontrolled hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism, it is actually going to be exceedingly difficult to get pregnant in the first place with a thyroid condition. If and when pregnancy does result miscarriages are very common. Preeclampsia or eclampsia, blood pressure conditions, leading to early or premature delivery, 
Sometimes fetal death is also common if thyroid conditions are uncontrolled in pregnancy. And then going back and mentioning that that fetus does not have a thyroid to begin with for the first few weeks, fetal growth, the nervous system, their development, their body weight, their final height that they're going to reach, all depends a lot on that thyroid hormone. So insufficient amounts or excessive amounts of thyroid hormone can cause severe adverse outcomes, both in the fetus and in the mother. And then finally, there are conditions where they may not affect the fetus right at that time. But if mom has uncontrolled hyperthyroid disease and the fetus has antibodies from the mom, once they are out of the body, you can have what we call neonatal or right after birth problems in the newborn baby to look out for. So yes, hyper or hypothyroidism in pregnancy that goes untreated is extremely dangerous, both for mom and the baby. But what if your own body starts attacking your thyroid gland in a condition called you know, autoimmune thyroid disease? What is going on here? So autoimmune thyrotoxicosis or Graves' disease, as we commonly call it, is really one of, now that is the most common cause of hyperthyroidism and overactive thyroid during pregnancy. We have all talked a lot about our immune system attacking and fighting viruses and bacteria, especially especially in the past two years of the pandemic. And I often tell people, think about your immune system is, these are good soldiers, they're fighting viruses and bacteria. But sometimes if they start noticing or feeling that that thyroid gland is an inherent threat and start attacking the thyroid gland, then that is not such a good thing. Most of the time, people with autoimmune thyroid issues, actually the thyroid gland goes underactive. It just doesn't work like it's supposed to. It's often called Hashimoto's on that end of the spectrum. What can be very dangerous to a pregnant woman is when it gets overactive or gets thyrotoxicosis. That overactive thyroid will not only produce high blood pressure, heart rate changes, possibility of preeclampsia, placental disruption, early labor, but it can affect and cause fetal death as well. Most of the time, this is because of antibodies that immune system is attacking the thyroid. These are stimulating antibodies. They are thyroid receptor stimulating antibodies or often called as TRAB, T-R-A-B. And these pass down across the placenta to the baby, causing problems in the fetus as well. Fortunately, there are medications that can be used to treat it. PTU or propylthiouracil and then metamazole being the two medicines that are most commonly used to treat autoimmune thyrotoxicosis during pregnancy. So a goiter is when the thyroid gland is enlarged and you can see that in women, but a baby that is in the fetus, can that baby develop a goiter with an enlargement of the thyroid gland in the baby's neck? So yes, the answer is yes. It is scary and it's going back or reflecting on those same thyroid receptors stimulating antibodies. So if those antibodies pass across the placenta and to the baby's thyroid tissue, they can stimulate the baby's thyroid tissue to grow excessively, causing a large goiter even before the baby is born. You know, you talked about the hypothyroidism. You talked about some of the symptoms and it's 
it can have, it can be present in just up to 1% of pregnant women. But what are some of the symptoms again? Because it seems to be like a little bit of um, overlap between normal pregnancy. And you talked about that. So a woman with hypothyroidism, how can we say that, okay, this is not a a symptom or sign of normal pregnancy? So to be very honest, it is extremely difficult unless there's severe hypothyroidism involved. So weight gain is a normal part of pregnancy. We expect our pregnant patients to gain weight. I may exaggerate a little bit, but I say if I expect my woman to gain about four or five pounds every time she comes back to see me, but she's gaining 20 or 25 pounds every time she comes back to see me, then that's too big a weight gain to just call it pregnancy-related weight gain. Same things uh, could be applied to the severity of the constipation, the change in heart rate, the dry skin, could be some factors to go by. But this is one reason why endocrinologists depend on hormone levels uh, so often, so frequently. That being said, thyroid hormone levels or ranges change a lot during normal pregnancy. So during pregnancy, a TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone, which is often used as a screening test for the thyroid, most lab value ranges up to 4.5 are often considered normal in the general population. Endocrinology recommendations are that a woman with hypothyroidism should have a TSH under 2.5 during the entire course and duration of her pregnancy. If we talked about some of those changes that happen with the placenta, the HCG, and thyroid hormones during that first trimester, you could argue that that TSH is probably going to be even lower in that first trimester of pregnancy. So as a general rule, that TSH should be under 2.5 or my goal of treating them with thyroid hormone, levothyroxine, is generally to get that TSH to less than 2.5. Total thyroid hormone levels do increase during pregnancy, but as I mentioned, because thyroid binding globulin increases, there's a lot of bound hormone. There's not as much free thyroid hormone floating around. So in order to make sure there's adequate thyroid hormone replacement, that total thyroid hormone level in your pregnant woman is probably going to be one to one and a half times the upper limit of normal as compared to the non-pregnant woman. The upper limit for that free thyroid hormone level is actually a little lower. You're not going to see as much free thyroid hormone level in your pregnant patient. So yes, monitoring those TFTs or thyroid function tests at least once every single trimester and then if you change a dose of thyroid hormone, within four to six weeks of changing that thyroid hormone dose is really extremely important and possibly your best way of figuring out if they're still hypothyroid and if they need more treatment.